Hi everybody, this is Michael Hollands once again for Film Music Media. Today I'm talking to composer Sven Falconer. Over the past seven years, Sven has had the possibility to showcase his great talent, scoring several short films and documentaries, as well as working on scores providing synth programming and or additional music and arrangements, score production and assistance. Furthermore, he was given the chance to perfect his talent working with some of the most high-profile composers in the industry. For instance, he worked as a scoring assistant on Ridley Scott's Robin Hood and Despicable Me at Hans Zimmer's Remote Control Productions Facility. And since 2010, he has enjoyed an ongoing collaboration with one of the best composers in the business, James Newton Howard. Working on such high-profile films as Nightcrawler, The Hunger Games, The Bourne Legacy, What Lives Inside, The Green Hornet, Snow White and the Huntsman, The Tourist, Maleficent, Concussion and so many more. Welcome, Sven. Wow, what an introduction, Michael. I've never been introduced like that before. Today. I feel so honored, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're more than welcome, more than welcome. Well, well deserved. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay, at first I would like to um, get some information about your musical education and background. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I started, well, I was born and raised in Belgium. And I moved to the United States in, uh, when I was uh, 27 years old. And uh, so in uh, Belgium, I started following Music Academy. I think I started at age, hmm, let's see. Probably around six or eight, some, some I think six probably. And basically, it's kind of uh, it's in Belgium, so it's a very classical system. It's quite rigid, and uh, you start the first year with music theory, and then you add on an instrument, which you know you start playing when you're seven. Uh, in the end, you, you end up playing an instrument of choice for nine years till you're 18. So I guess, yeah, you, the, the academy starts at eight and you start playing the instrument at nine. And, uh, and then you, all these classes get added on over the years. You get music history, you get uh, playing together in orchestra, you get evening classes playing with harmony orchestra or symphony orchestra, um, and, and, and so on. So you kind of get a, a fairly wide... Um, education in music it's a little different from the American system where I what I really like about the American system is that a lot of students get exposed to music in in school which isn't really the case in Belgium so you, you really have to actively make a decision to uh, uh, get a music education and do it in the evenings so it's it's a little more uh, it takes more time but unfortunately, not everybody gets ex gets exposed to it. You kind of have to either have friends who support it or you have to want it yourself. Uh, but that that's been my uh, music education until I was eighteen and I was I was kind of starting to write music or compose little pieces on piano from a fairly young age, eleven or twelve. My main instrument was clarinet, but since my brother uh, had picked the piano, we had a piano at home, so. From a young age, I started improvising and playing. So that's that was kind of my introduction to creating my own pieces and, and playing an instrument and, and music theory and all that stuff. And then after high school, I uh, I studied electrical engineering, was which was quite a different field. Uh, but I was very heavily involved with um, music during during university, uh, which I studied in Ghent um, mm -hmm. for five years. And so I I 
founded a symphony orchestra. I, I, I played in a funk band. I, I, I write in more and more music. So it was kind of a, a, a passionate hobby of mine, and I took it quite serious uh, playing in the symphony orchestra. And, and um, so I kept on being exposed to a lot of writing and a lot of playing. Um, then after engineering, I, I worked in that field for quite a while. Um, my last year in college, I studied in Rome, though, and I, I lived with uh, um, Italian director, and uh, I wrote. That's the that, my last year of college was the first time I really started writing a lot of music to film. Then after that, I worked in the in the engineering field for quite some time, and then I decided to move to the United States, amongst others, because I kind of wanted to get more into film music. And then I started following a UCLA uh, film scoring program, where I got exposed exposed much more deeply to uh, conducting an orchestration and instrumentation and counterpoint and I started conducting my own pieces in sync to picture with a live orchestra and all that stuff so that was really my f first exposure to proper composition classes and counterpoint so fairly late I, I had already been working for quite a few years in, in a very different field Wow, cool! <laughs> yeah, well, it, it takes a lot of you know time, I think, to to um, to learn this craft. You know, like you said, just said, orchestration, arrangement, conducting. So many people start at a very early age, and it takes a lot of time to to learn the craft. You know, from spade. <laughs> so it's a uh, very awesome, I think, for everybody to pursue a career in um, composing or mu musicianship in general. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Um. Who are your who are your personal musical heroes, and which composer or composers do you think um, influence you the most? Oh man, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, it kind of ch changes over time, I guess. I, I feel like since, um, well, my parents listened a lot to classical music, and I listened a lot to classical music myself. So a lot of the greatest composers from centuries ago are definitely on that list. Um, that's what I first listened to as a kid. I, I feel I didn't listen quite as much to film scores in my very early youth, you know. I started listening to film music maybe around the age of 12 or 13. I really started getting passionate about that. And, you know, I just remember as a kid hearing scores like uh, Forrest Gump was one that definitely, you know, had a big impact on me. And, and I, I kind of think that was the time around which I really started paying much more attention to uh, to film music. Uh, I also remember um, what was the movie Hans Zimmer's score that was uh, with the clarinet score. It went da 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 da. Um, it's yeah, about driving, Miss Daisy. yeah, driving Miss Daisy, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, those, those are just some very early scores where I just really noticed the music and I liked it a lot and started listening a lot more to film music. Uh, but still, you know, just having listened to all all the the great classical composers, I feel that's that's had a, a big influence on me, and I, it kind of changes over from one year to the other. I, I remember. It, 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 Two years ago, I was completely obsessed by uh, Jupiter, the the planets from Holst, and uh, and it kind of varies, you know. And then it, it'll go to a different type of uh, classical music, or it can be a film score. I know uh, the person I work for, James Newton Howard, yeah, uh, uh, 
one score of his that I just think is is an incredible piece of work is Treasure Planet. So if yeah. if, uh, if any of the listeners are not familiar with Treasure Planet, they should look up. I think there's a a compilation on YouTube that kind of features all the mo- more interesting pieces and they kind of put it together as one larger suite and it's just really phenomenal. Um, and of course, a lot that he has done. Uh, but yeah. He, the, it, it kind of, yeah, I, I hope that answers your question, Michael. I can go on and on about this, but I, I don't know how much time we have. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the score you just mentioned, the Treasure Planet, is really awesome. And uh, what, one of my favorite scores uh, in general, and um, by James, of course. Yeah. Okay, um, sp- speaking um, of the scores, how, how did you... I previously mentioned that you worked uh, as a scoring assistant on Robin Hood with uh, Rip, Ridley Scott and uh, composer Mark um, Streitenfeld, it was. Um, yeah. How did this collaboration come about? Well, that was really my... That was uh, maybe the one of the bigger changes uh, from a career standpoint because I was still working as an, as an engineer, so I kind of had to make the choice. I didn't have that much experience in film scoring. Uh, but I did bring uh, years and years of working in the sequencer. Uh, you know, I, I started working in Cubase when I was 12, I think. So this was in uh, a long time ago. So I was very familiar with the tools needed to write music, and I think that was an advantage. But it was kind of an entry-level position. You know, it was a mixture of kind of learning from the guys who were doing all the cool stuff and and taking out trash and and running groceries. So it was it. Was It was really great that I got a credit on the movie, uh, but it was definitely an entry-level uh, position. So it was kind of a scary decision for me to make to kind of drop a career in a, in a field that was paying me very well and kind of start over, start from scratch and work for this composer on a big movie and not make that much money, but, but mainly learn a lot, basically. So it was an important decision. On, uh, I, I think it was kind of where I really made the decision to do this full-time. Um. Yeah, you, cool. You also did um, Despicable Me at Remote Control, is that right? Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I worked for Hator Pereira right. at Remote Control, and he was doing a couple of different projects. And uh, I, I know he was very heavily focused on Despicable Me when I was working there. So I did some. Uh, I, I worked on a couple of different projects for him, mainly doing MIDI orchestration. So basically, uh, working in the sequencer mainly. And uh, yeah, I think Despicable Me was was a really important and big project for him, and I think he did a phenomenal job. And I got to see him do all the guitar work he did on on that score, and which he, you know, I'm a, I'm it's a really cool, uh, uh, fun uh, score that he wrote for that movie, and yeah, uh, fun collaborating with him on it. Yeah, I like the score a lot, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think um, Hator is a phenomenal guitarist. So. Oh, he's amazing! Yeah, yeah. Source. He's a. He's a. What's the word? He's a source of nature. I mean, yeah. When and you see all the guitars in his studio, it's yeah. pretty. Yeah, the, um, the the force of nature. Force of nature, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of RCP and rem- basically remote control, did you have um, a lot of interaction with Hans Zimmer himself when you were there? Oh, uh, not that much. It was I was mainly working for Hator, and it's a big uh, it's a big facility. So there's a lot of quite a few composers. I did bump into him a couple of times, and actually, fun- funniest thing was 
my wife, I was working there over the weekend, and my wife came in and brought some lunch or something, I forget. So we were sitting there, and it's a really beautiful kitchen in the building that Hator's studio is at. It's a, kind of a professional kitchen, and it has everything you need to make an incredible lunch or dinner. And he just it was just me and my wife, and we were sitting there, and... He, uh, he just walked into the kitchen and he sat at the table and we were having, he just started chatting. We were having lunch, the three of us, my wife, uh, <laughs> myself, and Hans Zimmer. It was kind of a memorable moment. <laughs> it was funny. Wow, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, but the, um, the facility is huge. I mean, I have not yet had the, the fortune of visiting Hans at the studio, but I know, of course, the facility and from several documentaries and the pictures. And it's so huge. And <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah and it's mean, beautiful. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful place, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how was the connection made to James Newton Howard and his studio? Um, that was kind of just an an odd occurrence. Uh, I I was kind of uh, working uh, for a while. I was doing uh, music for commercials, and I was. Um, visiting all these music houses. There's quite a few in Santa Monica, which is where I was living at the time. And then uh, uh, and then I could just kind of wanted to get back into assisting a bigger uh, composer because my experience had been pretty great working for Hator and working for Mark and just learning so much from people who are seasoned film composers that I was uh, kind of missing that. So I, I just started calling probably 10 or 20 of my favorite A-list composer studios. So it's just kind of uh, a lot of preparation to get the right contact info and just call these studios. And I, I ended up calling uh, James's studio uh, at a moment that they were looking for a second assistant. And so I just got lucky with timing and uh, I got invited for an interview and then uh, I eventually got hired. So it was kind of an, an, a really lucky break for me. Great. Um, you started working there in 2010, right? Yeah, that's correct. Great. Um, in general, before uh, we get more into your collaboration with James, what do you um, actually enjoy more, working on orchestral music scores or um, electronics and samples and experimenting? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I can really give you a, a either-or answer on that uh, because... I guess it's just, it kind of depends on, it really depends more on the type of collaboration, uh, what I enjoy the most. It's really, um, uh, I, I think it's definitely interesting combining electronic elements in an orchestral score, but I've written quite a few purely orchestral uh, scores, which are some of my favorite of uh, some of the favorite scores I worked on, and I, I guess I really enjoy it when I can kind of experiment a little. So, the orchestral stuff I've written in, in some cases for small ensemble, or maybe um, what I thought was really interesting about it is finding a, a voice that's maybe doing something new or that's that's emotionally hitting a, a spot that in in a in a in a unique way. So that, that's what I love about writing film scores, whether it's hybrid, whether it's purely electronic, or whether it's purely orchestral. It's kind of with the instruments that you have, um, hit, emotionally hit the right spot. And if that process becomes intriguing and, and unique and special, then I really enjoy the process a lot. 
So it's usually in very close collaboration with the director and, and the editor and whoever's part of the creative process. Great. Um, sounds great. Um, how would you um, describe your work relationship uh, with James and how do you two communicate? Oh, um, well, it's it's kind of developed over time. I started working as a second assistant, so I was more shadowing the first assistant, which was Stuart Thomas, who is an, another incredible film composer and who kind of taught me everything. Um, and I worked uh, under him for two years, so that was quite a long period of time that I could, you know, that James could get used to me just kind of shadowing this first assistant. I think that was a nice way to kind of be introduced to the studio and to his operation because, um, um, you know, it gave me enough time to get used to his way of working and to really understand the process, whether it's creative or whether it's technical. And uh, so, but over time, you know, and then since then I've worked almost four years now for him being his first assistant, so that's a pretty close collaboration. So we've kind of become friends in a way and we know each other really well and we've spent a lot of time together just me and him so it's become kind of a, a, a fairly close collaboration but it's definitely evolved over time uh, so com talking about communication you know it's it's really kind of just spending a lot of time together um, and that's different moments it, it, of course all the meetings with the directors I started I, I'm I'm a part of um, uh, when I started working at the studio being the second assistant, I, I even was a part of that. And I think that was a really cool and uh, incredible way to learn so much. I really think I learned a lot of important things from James just sitting in on those meetings and seeing how he deals with rewrites and, and how, you know, what he's always impressed me in how dedicated he is and, and how you know, that's what every film composer says is uh, you're only as good as your rewrite and, and a, a lot of film composers have a hard time dealing with criticism or with, with uh, you know, a cue that they thought worked really well and that uh, now they have to rewrite even though they feel it was doing the exact right thing. I feel James has is, is been an amazing example just the way he deals with it because he's just it's not a it's not a big deal for him he just of course if he if he disagrees he'll he'll have an you know he'll have a discussion about it with the director but when he agrees with the director he's it's it's just part of his process and he and he does it and and it and it's it seems so easy for him and that was a big deal for me to see that a big name a-list composer like that is is such a an easy collaborator i think that's one of the most important lessons that that he's taught me uh, but but yeah, sitting in on the meetings, seeing how he handles the uh, the creative, the, the collaboration with the director, but also the political, you know, dealing with producers or with different people having different opinions about the score and kind of just managing that and just seeing a very seasoned film composer handle that has been a, a huge uh, learning experience for me. And, you know... There's, of course, a lot of different areas that we collaborate. There's a, a very important technical component in assisting a guy like James. Um, there's, uh, there's creative uh, elements, and it's just us sitting together and, and talking about the different things. I don't think it's, it's kind of, uh, 
I don't really know how to describe how we would communicate, but it's just basically over time we've developed a relationship and when he needs something, he asks for it. And when I did it the first time, maybe it wasn't exactly right. And, and you kind of learn from his feedback and you kind of develop a relationship like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's good that you just mentioned it. James has this, um, I think, a, a reputation, as far as I know, for being very um, calm and easygoing. And mm -hmm. yeah, and that, I think that's a very important, uh, let's say, um, thing for for a composer to to maintain composure. And I think there are quite a few um, composers um, that uh, might not deal well with um, criticism, and that <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, and that they might lose their cool over you know several producers being involved and changing their mind all of, um, all the time. It's it's a very difficult process. You know, you have to deal with the director and the producers and the studio. So it's it's a lot of inputs, and uh, I think it takes a tremendous amount of um, patience to yeah uh, yeah to actually deal with absolutely but i do think that you know if you're an, a, a successful composer you kind of have to be good at that i don't think there's you know it's just such an important part i you know i figure all the 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 the, the top 20 composers and even not the a-list composers any composers who's, who's really successful and who consistently delivers the scores that make the directors happy have a, a lot of that, you know, that's a quality they need to have, I feel, or you're not, you're just not going to be successful. <laughs> yeah, might very well be true. <laughs> yeah, I think you, we, you got a point there. Um, one thing, when working on a big project like, you know, The Hunger Games or Maleficent, um, do you guys have like regular working hours or does that concept go out of the window with um, the tight deadline? <laughs> Oh, um, you know, it kind of, it can go out the window, but uh, James is pretty, uh, what's the, man, I'm not finding my words today, uh, he's very, um, what's it, he's just very consistent, like he likes to start at 9 a.m. and he'll go, on a, on a typical day, he might go till, till 6 or 7 and when he gets really busy, we might go later. But it's not the crazy hours that I hear from other other composers where they maybe start a little later at 11 a.m. but they work till like 2 a.m. or something crazy like that. So he's definitely not like that. Um, of course, some sometimes when we're getting closer to scoring or when we get a whole new version of picture, now there's all these edits that the music editor needs to do, and we need to match them in MIDI before James looks at them. You know, there's just different things that can happen that require a lot of work on on the assistant side. So if James is is working hard and he's working, he's writing a lot of new music, and we're dealing with all these other technical issues, then you know it can get busy on on our end. And then sometimes I'm working, you know, still like a lot of hours after James leaves the studio, and then it, it can get a little crazy for a little while. But it's not a cons it's not a consistent level of craziness at, at his studio. He's very he's done it over 30 years, so he has a and he has a very clear process that just makes a lot of sense. He also works with all the, you know, the, the, the orchestrators he works with, the conductor he works with, and, and the, the MIDI preparation company he works with. All these people are just so 
they all know what they're doing. So there's, it's good to have a very clear process and steps. And it rarely happens that we run out of time and that we're panicking and now we're all working 24 hours a day and we're not getting the parts ready. That just never really happens. He's very, he knows when he needs to be done with a score for it to still be easy on everybody involved in, in the process and, and, and be able to do their best jobs. You know, I think that's a, that's another great thing about the way he works is I, I and I think for a lot of assistants who work for big composers who have a, a really good process in place is you just learn their way of working and you adopt all the best parts of that process and you, you kind of implement it in your own. Wow. Um, I think it takes a tremendous amount of coordination uh, to just to, to get through a project. And I've, I've heard several stories of composers working 24-7 you know, or meet, meeting a deadline. You know. it's, uh, it's, it's really tough. And uh, I can remember one, I think it was King Kong when James came in so late in the process. I think uh, one of the um, orchestrators uh, said that he was working from 9 a.m. in the morning until 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah. For basically yeah. six or seven weeks. And uh, that is an, an, such a huge amount of pressure. <laughs> oh, man, the King Kong. I, I'm, that happened a couple of years before I started working there. But I definitely talked to Stu because who was uh, the first assistant when I got hired, but he uh, worked there a couple of years before I started working there. Yeah. That was one of the first projects he had to manage. And uh, can you imagine just arriving at a studio and kind of and he, just getting thrown into a project like King Kong or James, and I think in less than four weeks had to write over three hours of music. It's just incredible what he achieved there. Um, and I, I remember Stu was telling me they were scoring at four different scoring stages simultaneously to get it all recorded and then the director was in New Zealand and the music editors had to fly out to New Zealand and now they're playing back cues and it was just crazy. James was writing while the music was getting recorded at four different stages. This was back when Todd A.O. was still open in LA and they were at Fox, at Sony and I think they were at Warner Brothers. They were just, you know, everywhere. It must have been, I mean, that's beyond anything I've experienced. That must have been a crazy, crazy time. But yeah. That was definitely one of the craziest times in James's career, I think. Yeah, sounds like sounds quite like a nightmare scenario. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of incredible that that, I, that they pulled it off. You know, just logistically that they were able to get the parts everywhere. And I mean, it's it's incredible. <laughs> I think it's one of one of the things that happen a lot in this business when when a composer gets replaced for whatever reason. And uh, you hear these stories a lot. Somebody gets, you know. Um, laid off or there's a creative difference and somebody else has to step in and finish a score or write a new score within three or four weeks um have you ever had an experience where you were coming in so late in the process maybe on an indie pr project or something like that uh yeah yeah i've had that uh, i think only once but there's definitely one project i can remember but where i just had to write one cue uh, very late and kind of had three days to write and it was just one cue so it wasn't like 20 or 30 minutes of music but it was kind of a similar thing where yeah at the end of a project um, you kind of have to come in and there's already a lot of music is existing so you can kind of have to take that into account and you can't write something that sounds like a totally different score so it was interesting because I, I, I've only had to do it once but it was interesting to kind of take the sensibilities of a, another composer into account and write something that you feel like he might have written 
although you you know he wouldn't have but you're and you're writing it but that's kind of an an interesting way to approach a score but yeah i've i've i think i've only done that i've only been involved that late in the game uh once i think okay um one of the the pieces um that you wrote that I liked the most was um uh, what lives inside um, the series? Uh, right. Yeah, c c way back I asked you whether there was were plans for a CD release, and apparently there are still none. Um, that was the first time you had a co-scoring credit with James, I believe. Yeah. Um, could you tell me something a little bit about um, that project? Oh yeah, that was that was a big deal for me. Uh, that I. I worked on Maleficent with uh, James, Yeah, uh, you know, in, in my usual role, uh, you know, assisting throughout the process and doing some additional arrangements and stuff like that. But uh, I got, you know, James collaborated very closely with the director, Robert Stromberg, and I think he started that movie, he started writing on that movie a year before it got released. So he uh, took quite uh, a bit of time to develop thematic material on that movie, and then the movie got recut in the middle of that, and... But he, it was just a very long process, and it was interesting because I feel you can hear that in the score. It was just you can tell that it was given time to develop and really become the Maleficent score. Um, so I kind of already knew Robert Stromberg because we were in London together when when the score got recorded, and and I was there doing all the meetings. So I kind of was a familiar face to him, knew me, and uh, the what lives inside thing was a, a mini-series. It was four episodes for Hulu, which I, it's still on Hulu. Uh, it was kind of a, um, a promotional thing uh, for Dell and Intel as well. So there, it was an ad agency that kind of uh, put it together, together with Intel and Dell. And then RSA, Ridley Scott's uh, ad branch of their company, were producing it. And I think the uh, Robert Stromberg got hired as the director on it, so that kind of James. He asked James to do the music, and and so um, we just both ended up um, writing big parts of the score on that. So it was my first official uh, co-composer credit with him, and it was you know it was an incredible experience working with James and hearing the stuff he'd write, and then him listening to the stuff I'd written and having the director sit there and critique both our pieces. It was just kind of a very unique and a first off uh, experience for me. And it was a, it was a great, uh, uh, it was a great opportunity because it's, it was a genre that you don't really get that easily because it was animation and, and with a live action and it was a very fantastical magical story. So yeah, it was, uh, it was very cool. It was a very cool uh, project to work on. It also, we didn't get to score live orchestra, so we were trying to push the uh, samples, the orchestral samples, as far as we could. So it was an interesting exercise that way, too. Sounds wonderful. Um, one thing, what do you think of all the movies that you've worked on so far? What do you think has been the most uh, difficult or challenging scoring assignment for you personally? Hmm. Um, well, uh, I think it's usually the projects where, you know, on some movies you just start writing and 
it just works fairly quickly and the and the director likes the direction you've taken the score into and and it kind of writes fairly easily but on some projects the process gets a little more intense and you can sometimes spend up to a couple of weeks or even even more just trying to get the first cue approved and uh but i i enjoy that process but that's definitely the it gets more challenging when when you're trying to find the tone of a score but that sometimes leads to the most interesting scores i've written so you know uh but that's that's stressful because you're you're writing stuff and you think it works and then the director isn't happy and he and he you're just trying to just bring both your um your uh, sensibilities together and find a thing that works on uh, for the director and for the story so i think the the times where it took me a longer time to find the right a uh, tonely find the right tone for a score uh that's probably something that that that's been some of the most challenging stuff i feel um yeah okay um, you scored several short movies, documentaries, and also some independent movies. Um, would you say that there is more time, more freedom writing for indie films? How would you describe the um, the difference? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I, I feel, on some cases, even on on uh, indie movies, it can be it can be tougher sometimes because there's. Uh, low definitely lower budget so you're already under different time and economical constraints so you're trying to figure things out with a smaller orchestra or with fewer scoring dates so you kind of have to keep that in mind when you're writing too so um i don't it with it, of course on the other hand there's maybe less studio involvement or there's uh, or, or the director has more freedom it kind of depends too because there's quite a difference between indie projects in europe versus indie projects in the in the United States. Yeah. Um, just the amount of freedom that a director gets. And that's been very different on the big blockbusters that I've seen James work on. Just uh, the organization and and what what the say of a director versus the say of producers or the picture editor and all that stuff. Uh, it, it's just different on any, any project. And I don't know if you can very easily say, oh, indie projects are like this and big budget blockbusters are like that because there hasn't been a single big blockbuster that that I've seen James do that was exactly the same as any of the other ones I've seen him do you know and on some of them he got so much freedom because he he either knows the 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 one of the he's maybe worked with one of the main producers on 50 movies so he has a very close relationship with that person and if that person has a lot of a, a political power on the project then he's he's gonna give James the time that he needs to do the score right and then on another project you know it's just different on every on every movie um, so it's hard to say what you know I've, I've seen James get so much freedom on big budget movies and uh, you know if you think of some of the stuff he's done for M. Night I mean that's you know, kind of uh, you know, he, he got to kind of just do something very unique and original with the director. And, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say, but I, th I think it's hard to kind of just uh, call, you know, it's it's hard to put them into little boxes because it's just so different. Every movie is so different. Okay. Um, 
which type of director or producer in or work relationship in general do you kind of prefer someone that gives you a, a clear like a guidance system or a temp or direction versus someone that says well just do your thing go ahead um i've i've had both i guess and uh i don't really have a preference i kind of think both ways i i definitely i i like a director having uh, a clear vision i don't know if it and that that can either be them telling me to just try something and then them being very clear on when, when they uh, give me feedback on a piece but it can also be that they have they've already put temp in the score that just gives me a lot of information on how they what they want the music to do so but if if a director doesn't really know what they want then it gets really difficult but that doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't you know the 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 movies that I've done where a director tells me to just that they can't really give me a clear direction at the start that they just want me to write something and then they'll go from there those have been some of the directors with the most clear vision of what they want because then they hear something and then now we're going that they they can respond to that and they can very quickly bring me to the right right place where the score needs to be and uh, sometimes you know it, both processes i like a lot whether it's just to to kick things off by writing music and just going from there and and getting his reaction or whether it's listening to temp and getting a lot of uh, feedback from that uh not that you're that you're going to want to copy the temp but i think temp isn't i have i've never really struggled that much with temp in that it would uh confine me too much i don't feel like i'm i'm going to try and copy the temp but usually temp can give me a lot of information about um what role the music should play and how much it should tell the audience in in specific scenes and and kind of their their musical sensibilities the score that they might respond to emotionally and um of course you know sometimes there's a piece of temp that just is just so amazing and it's been recorded with the best orchestra on the planet and then now you have to write a little demo with samples and you know it it doesn't make it e- easier in some cases but in general i think it can t- it can give you a lot of information that's very useful but i th- i feel both both ways of working work for me as long as the director can kind of take that information and give me something that i can you know base my rewrite on that's important getting some feedback from it okay um you always do a mock up right you don't write with uh you know, a classical piano, a pencil, paper, like some other guys do. You always use electronic samples, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know that uh, um, some composers are still out there that uh, still use, you know, the the old-fashioned way. Um, like uh, I think uh, John Williams, you know, still mm. still scores yeah. the old-fashioned way. Yeah. And but I've heard several people say, well, we actually can't do that anymore because you know, the producers right. and the directors want to want to hear a finished or a complete version of what it will sound like later on in the process, because that we we can we can you know make adjustments much faster and quicker in this process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, that's definitely been a, a change in the. Uh, industry i think the the people who can still do that i think it's fantastic because 
like a guy like you can hear that in the score because you you are limited in a way when you need to use samples to convey what you're what you want the score to do because uh, it's you just you have more freedom when you can just write straight on music sheet and think what it's going to sound like with a live orchestra you can't really the samples have become really amazing but you're just going to start writing a little more for the samples that you know sound good and, and little effecty things or little articulations that, that work well with the samples. So I feel it's been a great thing to get scores evaluated and approved. But on the other hand, there is something really powerful about not being constricted by samples. I've always done demos, but I, I feel like... Once you've developed a relationship with a director, there's some directors I've worked with maybe over seven movies now. I feel in the future at some point we might just do that. You know, I, I might make a mock-up, but maybe I won't be able to mock all this, the sm smaller details of uh, like a, a small ensemble score, for instance. You could do so many cool things, uh, weird effecty things that are just really hard to mock up. Yeah. That you just need a relationship of trust with the director, and you can mock up the part that you that is easy to do. But then you can explain to the director, and here I I want to do something that maybe you refer to some other classical pieces to give an idea of what you're going for, and then you show up at the scoring stage, and then it happens, and you know that's great. I think I, you know that a lot of composers probably do that. But yeah. I don't know when, when to which extent, but I think that something is lost when you're really constricted by samples only. And I definitely hope that in the future I'll, I'll get to develop a relationship of trust with different directors that I can, you know, that you can, that you get more freedom. That that you maybe you can't you don't demo everything. Well, you demo each piece, but maybe there are certain elements that only come to fruition at the scoring stage. I feel like James did that in a way with uh, After Earth score because they he scored this these uh, concert ensemble instruments, these uh, Baroque medieval uh, string instruments. Yeah. And he did all these weird bendy effecty things on that score and it was it was like nothing I'd ever heard. It was really cool and it was definitely something that was hard to demo. Um, you know, we sampled the instruments before we started working on it, so we had some samples, but all the weird bendy stuff, that would just happen at the scoring stage, and it sounded incredible. So, you know, that's an example of where, where, it, where it's not fully demoed. I thought that was great. Absolutely. Well, I think there's a pro and a con for every approach. Um, well, you, you can pretty much you know, mock, mock it up or well I, I've heard I've heard stories about you know uh, composers that uh, wrote you know the, the old-fashioned way and then when the director and producer showed up at the scoring stage and they said well it, it do doesn't sound anything like like anything that we've imagined and the whole score had to be redone and you know um, had they had you know the, um, the benefit of you know samples they might have you know um, found out very early on that it doesn't work oh, yeah. at all yeah then the composer would have had more freedom um, but I've also had other composers say, well, we can't mock this up because, you know, certain uh, string articulations are just, they, they sound so different when they are performed live as opposed to the mock-up. So I think uh, there's always a pro and a con. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that, for sure. Um, you worked on a film called um, Bloodfather, right? Um, it stars um, Mel Gibson and uh, William H. Macy. Um <laughs> <laughs> um, the project has been finished, right? Uh, could could you tell me, give me some, or give me some insight about the Bloodfather? 
Oh yeah. Uh, well, again, that was a big, uh, a big, important movie for me, and uh, I think right now it's scheduled to get released. Uh, the third quarter of this year. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, that was uh, so. It, it stars Mel Gibson, and he looks like a wild, crazy dude. Uh, and he's really great in it. I gotta say, he's just, just the movie just reminded me of what a, a, a you know, a, a force of nature, as you've told me. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, he's just a phenomenal actor. I feel, and in the movie, he just draws you in, and it's just Mel Gibson back to you know what. If you think of all the movies he's done and even directed in in, in his lifetime, it's just you can't deny that he's uh, an incredible. Uh, power on the screen and I think you can see that in this movie but anyway yeah the movie is about him kind of connecting with his daughter again so the score was an exciting project because uh, it was uh, it's going to be my first movie that's going to get theatrical release if it does get theatrical release so, so it would be very exciting on my end and we did uh, a couple of uh, days with uh, orchestra uh, so I got to use live orchestra on it, and uh, it was about him re reconnecting with his daughter. So it's kind of between there's there's a couple of big action sequences, but then there's very uh, soft moments between him and his daughter where they're kind of you know opening up again. So it was an interesting score. It kind of was between those two worlds, you know, them connecting versus them being chased by a motorcycle gang. <laughs> it was a very uh, a very great opportunity, I gotta say. Cool. Um, what is your, um, if you're allowed to talk about it, what is your most recent um, project? Oh, um, well, right now I'm going to, I need to finish uh, the score on a documentary uh, by end of May, which I'm very excited about. It's uh, by a director named Ming Lai, who yep. is a documentary, Visions of Warriors, which is about um, how... Um, Photography as uh, therapy has been very effective on veterans, and so they kind of the documentary follows mainly follows four veterans uh, and kind of how they've dealt with uh, their uh, you know PTSD and other uh, other um, issues they they're struggling with. How they've how photography has kind of had a, a really positive influence on their life and dealing with those issues and they mainly follow these four veterans and they're very different in in, in gender and ethnicity and, and kind of their background and when they went to war and which war so it's, it gives you a very diverse view on on the issues that veterans struggle with and uh, kind of how photography has kind of changed their lives so it's going to be a really fun documentary I think it's going to be quite emotional and and uh, an, an important documentary for me. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be working on that, and I'll need to be done with that by the end of May. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite movie in general? I mean, not not the movie that, that you've worked on, but just <laughs> any movie. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, there's a couple of movies that really stood out. Um, Groundhog Day, I like a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that one. Yeah, um, and then you know when you're talking about film scores, you know I just remember obviously 
you know, Jurassic Park and things like that, or, or Back to the Future. Um, um, yeah, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, yeah. just to name a couple. But yeah, there's a lot of, of favorite movies out there that I have. I like the the Good Heart, which is kind of a. I think it's on Netflix. It's with Ryan Cox and Paul Dano. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of not. I've been surprised not a lot of people know about the movie. But yeah, there's man. I love movies. I watch movies all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. A lot of favorite movies. <laughs> oh yeah, so do I. Well, I watch so many movies each year, and right now, you know, it's um Oscar season, and there's so many movies coming out. You know, not like in, in Germany that were released, you know, maybe four or five weeks ago in in the states. And it's right now, it's pretty hard for me to to keep up actually with all the the work going on. So many movies, and uh, but it's um yeah, yeah I, I love that. Well, I've. Um, been watching movies like forever and it's, it's it's such a big part of my life as well not only movies but music as well and um yeah well basically i can't get enough of that stuff <laughs> yeah no and actually speaking of german movies yeah what was the uh das leben des anderen was a really great movie by yeah. uh, florian henkel von donnersmark like mm-hmm. sometimes you'll see a movie that would change your you know your idea of movies. Memento was another one that I really loved. But yeah, sometimes there's a movie that really uh, jumps out, for sure. Yeah, well, I think there are many movies out there that really gave me a, um, a clear vision of, of what I want to do or how sh- or how I should, you know, tackle certain situations. I think there are definitely movies that alter your um, perception on a certain subject. And um, that's basically what the best movies do. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, you know, life can be tough enough uh, as it is, and you know it's it's uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think it's it's nice to to have a movie that you know points out a certain situation or how, or well, I could do it that way or that character has gone through um, so many terrible things and actually what I uh, you know have to deal with is not so bad after all. So it it oh it's always nice to find a certain source of inspiration. Or I love Absolutely. yeah yeah couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think I'm um, running out of questions, at least for now. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to mention? No, no, no. I really appreciate the time with you, Michael. I was, I was excited about this. It was fun. We should do this again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I would I would love to, to come to, um, to Los Angeles. Actually, I, uh, I want to uh, go on holiday there. Maybe I can really... Uh, get it done this year or maybe next year it would would be i've ne- I've never been there and would be amazing maybe to to meet up so many guys that i've been in touch with for for so many years and never really had the the chance to meet uh, maybe one day we will get to meet up as well man i'd love it yeah definitely let me know when you're going to be in los angeles you should drop by the studio absolutely yeah would would love to um Okay, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think you're almost about to, to leave for the studio at the moment, right? I am, yeah. I'm about getting ready to go here. Okay. Um, okay, um, then Sven, thank you so much for for your time. It was a pleasure. I really had a great time doing the interview. I hope it was good for you too. Yeah, the pleasure was all mine, Michael. Thanks a lot for yeah. uh, taking the time. This was very cool.